Good morning from the Financial Times. Today is Friday, February 4th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Amazon raised the price of a Prime subscription. Customers might be annoyed, but investors are thrilled. The Beijing Olympics kick off today, and so does the pressure on corporate sponsors. And Russia warned them not to, but the leaders of Ukraine and Turkey just signed some new defense deals. Plus, as always, we'll wrap up the week in markets with Katie Martin. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. Amazon's share price skyrocketed more than 17.5% yesterday in after-hours trading. This happened while the company was reporting quarterly earnings and announced that it will jack up the price of its Prime membership by 20 bucks to $139. Amazon said this was in response to, in part, higher wages and transportation costs. It also forecasts lower-than-expected sales for this quarter that wouldn't beat Wall Street's expectations. So Amazon's earnings and its shares pop, that was after trading ended on Thursday and after a bloodbath in U.S. stocks during the regular trading session. Big indices had their worst day in nearly a year. And one reason for that was because Facebook's parent company, Meta, reported disappointing earnings. And the plunge in its share price reverberated throughout the rest of the market. Here's the FT's markets editor, Katie Martin. You know, some of these tech stocks now are so huge. If they get a sniffle, then the whole market gets a cold. There are some real monsters out there. And people who worry about market concentration have been saying this for, I don't know, four or five years. And everybody has gleefully ignored them because the line's going up. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, maybe we do actually need to worry about this. You know, this whole period where markets only go up because the Fed is always there and all the other central banks are always there and they will pick up the pieces. Not anymore. Right, exactly. And speaking of central banks, uh, both the Bank of England and the European Central Bank met this week. They met yesterday. The BOE raised interest rates, but the ECB was, you know, its normal cautious self, right? It did, though, give out some noteworthy signals. Yeah, so it looks like the European Central Bank was being nice and boring, you know, keeping rates unchanged. But details of what central bankers say really matter. And ECB President Christine Lagarde refused to rule out a rise in rates this year. This has really sent a rocket into European bond markets. There's this growing sense that central banks have found themselves, you know, behind the curve. Inflation has absolutely run away. They've been far too cautious in dealing with it. And now all of a sudden, all of this forward guidance they gave that don't worry, we're very unlikely to do anything on interest rates this year is totally out of the window. (laughs) And they might have to really scramble to catch up. Meanwhile, the Bank of England raised interest rates. And for those of you keeping score at home, that's back-to-back interest rate rises for the BOE. But that that isn't even the most interesting part of it, right? Yeah, so it, it has got a little bit of a head start. You know, it's another rise in interest rates to 0.5%. It's not very often that you see these back-to-back rate rises. Here's the interesting thing about the Bank of England. It was a split decision. So there are nine people on the rate-setting committee, and this decision was split 5-4. But that sizable minority, they didn't want to sit on their hands and not raise rates at all. They wanted a bigger raise. 
Bear in mind, this came the same day that Brits were told that their energy bills were going to rise by, on average, £700 per household per year. That's a chunk of change. So this all links back into the cost of living crisis, for want of a better word, that a lot of people in the UK and around the world are facing. It all just adds to the sense that policymakers are struggling to put the inflationary toothpaste back in the tube. That's the FT's markets editor, Katie Martin. Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan was in Kiev yesterday. He met with Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky to deepen the two countries' relationship. Despite warnings from Moscow, the two signed trade and defense deals. In particular, they agreed to jointly produce drones in Ukraine. The FT's Laura Patel says the trade ties between the two countries are already quite strong. Turkish businesses, especially construction firms, have quite a lot of interests in Ukraine. Tourism is strong in both directions, but particularly there's a lot of Ukrainians who come to Turkey who flock to the coast for a bit of sunshine in the summer. In recent years, there's been very strong defence cooperation. And bilateral trade was around $7 billion last year, which is, you know, not huge um, compared to Turkey's trade with some other countries, but it's not nothing and it's growing. Laura, Turkey has already been supplying Ukraine with lethal armed drones Why is Turkey selling these drones to Ukraine? Well, Turkey's been trying to supply everybody with armed drones, to be honest, because they've got this very um, high-profile, effective and quite cost-effective armed drone called the TB2. The drones are actually seen as pretty good. Turkey has used them both in Turkey against Kurdish militants on its own soil, also in Syria, in Libya, and then supplied it to its allies in conflicts further afield. Ukraine has struggled to get its hands on armed drones, but Turkey's been very happy to sell them to them. This became a bit of a flashpoint in October last year when one of them was used to strike a piece of artillery belonging to Russian-backed separatists in eastern Ukraine. And the Kremlin responded very angrily, but Ukraine is very happy to have these. Isn't this kind of risky for Turkey? Definitely. I mean, uh, Erdogan is kind of pitching himself as um, a mediator, as somebody who has close ties um, with both Putin and Zelensky and could maybe help to cool tensions in this crisis. Kiev has has seen the visit as a show of support. um, And I think it's being watched closely in Moscow. Uh, Turkey has a lot of areas of dependence on Russia. So half of its natural gas comes from Russia. Russian tourists are hugely important to the Turkish tourism market. But in the eyes of NATO, the US and other NATO members are actually pretty pleased about the support that Turkey is giving for Ukraine. So in some regards, this is a chance for Turkey to repair its ties with the West a little bit after a pretty rocky few years. Laura Patel is the FT's Turkey correspondent. The Beijing Winter Olympics officially kick off today. It's a huge moment for China and for global corporations who sponsor the Games. But many companies are facing pressure to acknowledge Beijing's persecution of its Uyghur Muslim population. The FT reached out to all of the top sponsors for a response. That includes Coca-Cola, Toyota, and Airbnb. The FT's Andrew Edgecliffe-Johnson said they really didn't want to talk about it. Their discomfort is clear to see, not just in terms of how they're responding to questions from a few journalists, but in terms of the near silence we've seen from most of these brands in advertising the fact that they are sponsors of these games. Typically, at this point, you know, in the build-up to Olympic Games, you would already be exhausted from 
bit, the bombardment of Olympic themes ads from Coke or P&G or any of these other brands. In practice, we've had almost nothing on US TV, on US billboards or other outlets. And I think that is because they realize this is a very difficult issue to navigate with their consumers. Yeah, Edge, now that you mention it, I haven't seen many Olympic-themed commercials, um, at least not the way that I used to. Are companies just then keeping their heads down until the games are over? That was very much the view of some of the academics we spoke to who studied the way that companies use the Olympic Games for years. Um, We spoke to one sports management professor who said they're just trying to hang on and get through these games. I think even so, it is extraordinary when you think of the tens, sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars that companies pay to sponsor the games, that they're going to get very little direct return on that investment in terms of being able to go to the board and say, look, we ran these this ad campaign, it drove this spike in sales or whatever. So there is that anxiety. There is also the anxiety of what happens if one of the athletes they sponsor makes a political statement from the podium. That is one of the great imponderables to watch over the next couple of weeks. Andrew Edgecliff-Johnson is the FT's U.S. business editor. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back next week for the latest business news. The FT News Briefing is produced by Fiona Simon and me, Mark Filipino. Our editor is Jess Smith. We had help this week from Peter Barber and Kevin Coleman. Our executive producer is Topher Forges. Cheryl Brumley is the FT's global head of audio. And our theme song is by Metaphor Music. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.